Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. Who is uh, intern at New Hope. He's been there for two years. Um, and he has a pretty powerful word for us. And I'm going to let him do the rest of the introduction here. So, Andrew, welcome up. And if we can give him a warm welcome. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Jamal. How's it going, guys? My name is Andrew, and I am, as Tom may have mentioned, I'm actually a fellow Long Islander. So every time that, um, every time that Tom, um, yeah, I'm, I'm from New Hope Church in Jamaica, Queens, and I am just so excited for the fact that our church and your church get to partner up so much, that Tom gets to come and preach here, and I've been blessed several times by Pastor Lecce coming to our church in Jamaica, Queens, and every time that Tom preaches here, when he comes back to Queens and we get to talk, he always comes to me and he's like, I was with your people this weekend, I got to preach in Long Island, I was with your tribe, and so I'm so excited to finally meet you guys, I've heard so much about your church, and and that's really exciting for me, Um, and so um, actually, when I, was, when I was greeted, the first thing I was asked was, um, are you like Pastor Tom? And I was like, what do you mean? He was like, are you crazy? And I, was, I was like, well, maybe not in the same ways that Pastor Tom is. No one's quite as crazy as Pastor Tom. But um, I'm really grateful to be able to share uh, God's word with you guys today. Um, Tom also mentioned that there was a few uh, SUNY folk here. I, I actually grew up in Long Island, went up to uh, SUNY Binghamton. And that's actually a place that's really near and dear to my heart because that was actually the place where I came to faith. Um, that was the first time I got to read the Bible, the first time I got to hear the gospel, the first time I really got to be introduced to Jesus. And then God brought me back down to New York uh, to be able to minister in Queens. And so, um, you know, having gone the first 18, 19 years of my life never reading the Bible, Um, Never really getting to go to a church that preached God's word and really get to study it. um, I was kind of left to fend for myself to figure out who exactly God was. And I think for a lot of us who have been in church for a while, we kind of take for granted the fact that we come to church every week and we get to actually experience who God says he is directly from the Bible. We get to go home and as often as we do pick up our Bibles and open it, we get to experience exactly who God says he is in the Bible. And so for me, having not been able to experience that, um, you know, as I said, I was, I was kind of left to fend for my own. And I think a lot of people in the world feel this way, right? And so where, where did I get my ideas about God from? Well, um, I grew up in Long Beach, which is Nassau County, and I grew up in this uh, kind of middle-class, Irish, Italian, Catholic area um, of my town. And uh, when I was in middle school, uh, I had a group of about eight or nine friends that I would always hang out with. We'd play stickball, we'd play basketball, play football, hang out. And I don't know about you guys, but um, if, if you really want to if you really want to see the depths of human sinfulness, just go and hang out with a group of seventh and eighth grade boys. That's really, 
really the depths of, of human sinfulness. Like, there's no one more vicious to each other than seventh and eighth grade best friends, really. And so, um, so you know, we would try to find any single thing that we could pick on each other about, right? And so, um, in our group of friends, everybody was uh, Catholic except for myself and my other friend who was half Jewish. And, and so we would just get it. Because, you know, I mean, if you were too skinny, you would get made fun of. If you were fat, you would made fun of. If you were, you know, a redhead, you would get made fun of. And, and since we were kind of like the minority, they found some sort of reason to make fun of us. Uh, they would make fun of us because we weren't Catholic. And so it was really funny because we would just banter back and forth. But, um, you know, uh, one of the places where I got to actually learn about who God was or kind of you know, develop my thoughts on this was just in the conversations that we would have between me and my friends. And, um, you know, it was so random because none of us were really religious. Any type of religious title we have is really just a name. But um, we all went up to Pennsylvania once uh, on a trip. And my mom made us all wear life preservers on our boat. And they thought this was just so ridiculous and so funny that we would have to wear life preservers on a boat. And so they came up with this, like, made-up stereotype, like, Oh, Protestants can't swim. That's why they have to wear life preservers. And so that was like, I guess, one idea that I had about, you know, just religion. But, you know, I remember in high school watching the History Channel. And I don't know if you guys ever saw these specials on the History Channel about the Bible. But there was these uh, specials on the History Channel that said if you went into the Bible and you kind of turned it into this code, you could kind of predict... uh, historical events throughout history. And, you know, this was, I guess, like 2006, 2007. And so this History Channel special, they actually said, if you go into the Bible and you, and you decode it, it actually says that the world is going to end in 2012. And so I was like, oh my gosh, the world is going to end in 2012. Like, what am I going to do? The Bible says it, so it must be true. And, th- you know, this was another uh, idea that I had about God. And then the Da Vinci Code came out, right? And so I, you know, saw these monks in a monastery uh, whipping themselves. And I guess that has something to do with Christianity. But, you know, in my mind, I mean, at this point, I kind of put it all together. And I thought, okay, so if the world's going to end in December 21st, 2012, on December 20th, 2012, I'm going to go to a monastery and write down all my sins, and I guess confess it to a priest that I could be forgiven, and then finally when, you know, the world ends on 2012, uh, I could go to heaven or, or something, you know. So, but we, we forget, honestly, we forget when we're in church every single Sunday that when people don't get to experience God from the Bible, they're just left to their own to, like, really formulate who God is. And the passage that I'm going to go through today it's from Luke 15. So if you guys have Bibles, you go ahead and take it out. Um, we're going to be going through all Luke 15, so I'm going to kind of run through it. I don't have a PowerPoint because it's such a big passage. Um, but Jesus, when he came to earth and he started to speak, speaking to people, he showed them who God was in a way that was so clear, so precise, so gripping, That they weren't, after they experienced Jesus and after they experienced, you know, the way that he spoke about God, they were never the same. They were never the same. And in this passage, um, there's this interaction that Jesus has. And there's, there's two parties 
the two groups of people that Jesus encounters at this dinner. He's, having, he's at a dinner, and there's these tax... It says in verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. So there's two groups. There's the tax collectors and the sinners. And just going into the history of this, um, the tax collectors, they were actually this group of people that were in Israel representing Rome. So Rome had taken over this entire area, and as a result, they would collect taxes from the people. And these tax collectors, they were people that were of Israel. They were Israelites, representing this Roman government that oppressed Israel, that marginalized the people of Israel, and collected taxes for them. So they were seen as traitors. But not only were they seen as traitors, no one likes paying taxes, no one likes tax collectors, no one likes the IRS, of course. Not only were they seen as traitors, but they would actually take 20, 30, 40% more taxes than they were required to, cut it off the top, pocket it, and just completely exploit the fact that they, there's nothing that the Israelite people could do about it. What are you going to do about it? They had the Roman government on their side, right? So, so, so how could they even, you know, raise a complaint with them? So they were really wealthy, really, really successful, but they did it kind of in a dirty way. And as a result, they were like some of the most hated people in Israel. And then it says, now the tax collectors and sinners. Now, sinners was actually a technical term. At this time, because society and religion were so intertwined, the sinners was just this term that people would use for the outcasts. These people that have, I mean, they're sinners and then they're sinners. You know what I'm saying? There's like people who, you know, Think prostitutes, think hustlers, think gangsters, think the people in this society who were doing the things that were, that just, you know, they, they weren't just, you know, stealing candy. They were doing things that were really, really just ostracized for. So here are these people, outcasts, immoral, and they're all coming to Jesus. They're all just drawn to him. They're drawing near to him. And Jesus is welcoming them. And for the religious leaders, for the Pharisees and the scribes, that's the other group, this was just offensive. This was ridiculous. This was, you know, absolutely controversial. And so here here are these two groups of people, these Pharisees and these scribes, these religious leaders, these holy men, and here are these sinners, these tax collectors. They're all gathering together, and, 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 you know, the... Jesus is with them. And these religious leaders, they say in verse 2, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They grumbled. They, they scoffed at him. And then Jesus goes on to tell some stories. Now, if you're new to the Bible, there are some moments in Scripture where you basically know someone is about to get their stuff handed to them. So if, if, you, if you say, if, there's, if you're a character in the New Testament, if you're a character in the Bible, and you say something, if you say something to Jesus, and Jesus just ignores your comment, turns to the entire crowd, and then begins telling a story, you know you're about to get embarrassed. There were moments in Scripture where, 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 where someone will raise up a point, and Jesus will be like, are, are, are you sure you want to say that? You can take it back. Ready? Okay. Three, two, one. Okay, and then he just goes in on this guy's point. And this is exactly what happens in this passage. So Jesus goes on 
to tell these three stories. He starts off with a story about a shepherd, right? And so he, um, he ends up, yeah, in Luke 15, um, 40, he says, What man of you having a hundred sheep, and oh, what man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? And so he knows that these people could relate to agricultural life and, and shepherding. And so, and so he, he, he tells them a story. He tells all the people in this room this story about this shepherd who, who's at the end of the evening counting up his sheep, right? 97, 98, 99, 99. Whoa. Hold on one sec. And he realizes that he's supposed to have 100 sheep. He only has 99. And he's just like, all right, everybody just stay put. I'll be right back. He goes into the country. He goes, you know, over these mountains, over these, you know, rough terrain. And he goes and travels to find this one sheep brings the sheep back, and when he brings that sheep back, he calls up all of his friends and rejoices. He celebrates that he found this one lost sheep. And Jesus says in verse, um, in verse 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So he's, he's trying to explain, you know, something to these, to these Pharisees. You should, you should be rejoicing at the fact that these people are, are actually, you know, hanging out with me. And then he goes on to tell another parable. He says, he tells a parable about a woman in verse 8. And, and she's looking for, a, you know, all of her, her coins. And she realizes that she lost a coin and has the same reaction that the shepherd has, has the same reaction that we have when we can't find our cell phone. She just starts tearing up the entire house, the apartment. She lifts up the chairs, lifts up all of the um, lamps and everything, and she, and she finally finds that one coin, and then she celebrates. She rejoices. And Jesus says, in the same way, there, in verse 10, he says, in the same way, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So it tells these two stories. Guy loses a sheep, goes out and finds it, finds a sheep, rejoices. Woman loses a coin, looks for the coin, looks everywhere for the coin, finds the coin, rejoices. And then he tells this third story, and this is going to be what we're going to focus on tonight, starting in verse 11. This is a very famous story. It's called the parable of the prodigal son. So in this story, there is three characters, three characters that we really have to focus on. There is a father... And there's two sons. It's a father, it's two sons. He identifies the two sons, the older son and the younger son. And so one day, the younger son comes up to the father. And he says, Father, I want my inheritance. I want what's due to me when you pass away. Now, this is extremely offensive. Because basically what he's saying is, I don't really want any relationship with you. I don't want any ties to you. I don't want to spend any more time living under your house. I just want your stuff. As if you were dead, I would just like your stuff so that I could take it and just be done with you. I don't want to wait until you die, Father. I just want to consider you dead now. Take my, take my inheritance and go out and live the way that I want to live. And this is even more offensive because in this society... You don't do that to the patriarch of a family. You don't do that to the head of the household. This is just extremely offensive. And so the, the Pharisees are listening to this. The tax collectors and sinners are listening to this. And they're thinking, oh, my gosh. 
He said, what? And then the father responds in a way that no one would have expected. He says, okay, fair enough. He gives him his inheritance, and that would have been one-third of his property because the older son would have gotten two-thirds, the younger son would have gotten half of what the older son would have gotten. So he gives him one-third of his estate, and then the son goes out to another country and just spends it all, blows it all. It says he blows it on a moral living. So think about someone just going to Vegas, going on a bender, and just completely blowing everything that he has, right? So he spends all of his money on what it says is a moral living, and he gets to the point where he's so desperate. You know, he spent all of his money. He's completely destitute. The economy tanks. He has no friends left. And he actually goes and he hires himself out, it says in verse 15, to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And in verse 16, so, so think about the depths that this guy was at. He's, he's now, he went from having one-third of an estate, just completely wealthy and luxurious living, to now feeding pigs. And it says, he was longing, in verse 16, to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So think about how low of a point you have to be where you're feeding pigs, and you're jealous of the food that the pigs are actually getting. That, that's how low that, of a point that this guy was at. And he's sitting there, and he's thinking, I can't believe my life got to this point. And I wonder how, much, how many of us have been in that position, where you're just sitting there, you know, in a moment of clarity, at a low point, just saying, I, I never would have thought that my life would have gotten to this point. And so while he's there, he's thinking to himself, all right, I'm broke. I have no money at all. Um, I'm desperate. But my father, on the other hand, he has a lot of servants. I mean, he's pretty wealthy. He has a lot of servants. So here's what I'm going to do. It says in verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. So he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get up and I'm going to go to my father. He says, I'm going to say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired, stu- treat me as one of your hired servants. So here is this. Here's his younger brother, and he is practicing, you know, just in, the, just in the depths. He is just sitting there practicing what he's going to say when he gets back to his father. He's probably repeating it, probably, you know, just trying to get it down right, just the inflection, the right emotion to convey enough uh, empathy from his father to actually be welcomed back into his home as a servant. Right? So not as a son. I don't want you to bring me back into the family. I just want to be one of those people that, you know, serve at your estate. So brings himself together, goes out, and he was walking towards his father's estate. And the Bible says that, you know, while the father was off in the distance, it, it, it kind of describes exactly what was happening. So I want you to picture... All of these Pharisees, all these tax collectors, all of these sinners, all of these scribes sitting here around Jesus listening to this story. 
And they're probably waiting with such anticipation as to what the Father is going to do. The, scribe, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they probably have their idea of how the Father is going to respond to the Son when he comes back. They're probably just wringing their hands. He's going to get it. Jesus is going to teach us a lesson about moral authority and how he should have never went off and squandered all of his property to begin with. And, and, and this is a bad dude, so he's about to just, you know, get it from the Father. And, you know, the, the sinners and the, and the tax collectors, they're probably wondering, where's Jesus going with this story? Where exactly is he taking us? And the Bible says um, that the father, when he was still a long way off, in verse 20, saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. He ran, and he embraced him and kissed him. Now, the reason that this is a big deal, um, if, if you think about, if you've ever seen a movie about people in the first century, everybody's wearing robes. I don't know if that's historic. I guess it's historically accurate. Or else, why would they do that? But everybody's always wearing robes, right? So this father, the, he's wearing this long robe. He would have had to, like, pick up his robe, gird himself, and just start booking it towards his son. Now, if in this culture, in this society, you know, heads of the household, men, they, they, didn't, they didn't just like run like that. That was something that children did. And so Jesus is emphasizing how excited, how he's not even thinking about what anyone else is thinking about, but he's just looking at his son and running towards him and embracing him. And before the, the son, in verse 21, he says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father will not have it. He cuts him off as soon as he starts practicing his recited, you know, story to the father. And he goes and he calls one of his servants and he says, come, uh, uh, bring, bring my robe. I want you to bring my ring. I want you to take the fattened calf. I want you to kill it. We're going to have a party. My son was once lost. Now he is found. He was once dead. Now he's alive. We're going to celebrate, right? We're going to have a party right now. And so, um, you know, he welcomes him back into his family, not as a servant, but as a son. Welcomes him back as a servant and not as a son. And so they're, they're having this big feast. And at this point, there's really two characters who we'll find out aren't happy about this. Uh, the first one is the fattened calf because he has, a, he has to die. Um, but the second one <laughs> we'll find out is, is the older son. So it says in verse 25, the older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he's out in the field, and he could hear from the house, boom, 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 boom. So there's a party going on inside of the house. He could hear all of this music. And he calls one of the servants up to him while he's working out in the field. And he says, what does this mean? What, what, what exactly is going on? And the servant says, uh, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound, in verse 27. And the older son, instead of rejoicing alongside with the father, he answered his father. Uh, he, he, it says in verse 28 that he was angry and refused to go in. And while he refused to go in, his father came out and pleaded with him. He entreated him. He said, come in, come, rejoice. Let's have a party. Let's, let's, let's have a good time. And he answers his father. He says, look, 
These many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you gave me a young goat, that I'm, yet, you gave, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? So he, he, he says to him, look, and, and, you know, we don't really get to pick this up in the English translation, but that's a very disrespectful way for him. It's like, look, you, like, it's a very disrespectful way for him to actually talk to his father. And if you'll notice, in verse 30, he says, but when this son of yours came, he won't even call him his brother. He says, this son of yours, for whatever you have to do with him, when he comes, you kill the fattened calf and you have a party for him? Now, most of the time when people speak about this parable, they focus on the younger brother. And, and rightfully so. This shows God's heart towards people who are broken, towards people who are sinful. You know, when we have to fend for ourselves and we have to figure out how exactly is God going to relate to us. And then Jesus comes and he tells them, God actually relates to you with open arms. He wants you to, he wants you to come to him. That's, that's how God relates to you, right? So this is a beautiful story. It, it's, it's, like, it's like a Hollywood ending when it comes to the younger brother's story. People don't t- t- typically focus on the older brother, but I want you to recognize something about the older brother. Think about his response. Think about his response to the father. In that moment where he refuses to come in, his heart's actually revealed as to why exactly he had been such a good son to begin with. So this older brother never broke any of his dad's rules, followed every command that his dad had, served him with all of his heart, dedicated his life to serving his father. And then the moment that the father does something that he disagrees with, he'll have nothing to do with his father's will. Right? Why exactly was he serving him to begin with? Did he have any care for his father's joy? You know, look, here's his father rejoicing. And you would think that, that him, you know, on the outside, it appears that he is a very, very loving son. And here is his father, probably as happy as he has ever seen him in his life. And all that this son could do is grumble, is be upset, Right? In a sense, it's kind of like the son was actually just, just obeying the father to get the father's stuff, right? I mean, he's jealous of this younger son who's now getting some of his property. He's now getting some of his, his fattened calf. He's just obeying him to, to get his father's stuff. And so what's really, really telling, um, Jesus finishes this parable in verse 31. It says, and he said to him, son... So the father's still out there. He says, son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and now is found. And Jesus just ends the parable right there. So he doesn't tell us. Like the father is still, he ends this parable with the father still outside, pleading with the brother to come in. All of the Pharisees, all of the scribes, all of the sinners, all of the tax collectors on the edge of their seat. Is that older son going to come inside? And he just finishes the parable. That's it. Right? Now, 
This parable, if you think about it, was meant for the Pharisees and the scribes. We always talk about the younger brother. We always talk about how amazing it is that God welcomes back sinners. But in this situation, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and scribes. He was correcting them based on a false belief that they had about who God was. And when we look deep into this parable, or if we just understood a little bit more about the historical context, actually there's something, there's a reason that he ends this, this parable short. See, in this culture, the older brother was responsible for keeping the family together. So we don't see this in the parable explicitly stated, but every single person in that room would have known this. Every single person in that room would have been thinking, okay, so this younger brother goes out and leaves the family, completely destroys the family, breaks the family dynamic apart. The older brother should have went out and tried to get him back. That was like the older brother's role in this society. And so this entire time, as this parable is being told, that tension is hanging in the distance. When is the older brother going to leave? When is he going to go out and find the younger brother? When is he going to bring him back to his father so that the family could be reunited and they could have this amazing celebration that he has returned? And the older brother never does, right? And so Jesus here, well, he's saying one thing. First, he's telling the Pharisees, he's telling the scribes, this entire time while you're grumbling at the fact that sinners are coming back to me, it was your job to begin with to bring them back to God. So this entire time that you're having this whole in-group, out-group, judgmental thing that you have going on where you're really upset that there are people that are actually returning to God and people who are actually coming in to the household of God. Not only is that wrong, but you were supposed to be out looking for them to begin with. You were supposed to be out welcoming them, embracing them, going alongside them in their brokenness, healing their wounds and coming back home with them. But the second thing he's saying, the second thing that he's pointing to is, it's, it's incredible. He, you know, here he's, he's pointing to himself as the true older brother. He's saying, because you didn't, I had to come. And so Jesus, this older brother, and, and b- before we get into that, I just, I just want to point something out. We could rip on the older brother all we want, but, he, but it cost him a lot for this younger brother to come back. He kind of had a little bit of a reason to have a, a grudge. Because think about it. All of the one-third of the estate, right, that was given to the younger brother was given to the younger brother and is now squandered, right? So all that's left, all that's left that the father has when the father passes away is going to go to the older son. That's his inheritance. So that robe that the father took and put on the, the, the younger son, that the older brother's probably watching that robe. That was supposed to be mine. The ring, the fattened calf, that was all supposed to go to the older brother when the father would pass away, right? And so here is Jesus, even though these Pharisees won't leave and, and, and go out and find their younger brother, he's saying, I'm going to step down from my home, from my throne. I'm going to give up everything, just like this older brother had to, but but infinitely more. I'm going to give it up and I'm going to go out into the world to find all of these younger brothers who need to come home to their father's household. 
Think, think about those first two parables. The first parable, the shepherd loses a sheep, goes out, tries to find the sheep. Finds the sheep, brings them home. The second parable, lady loses the coin, looks everywhere, finds the coin, brings the coin back. Last parable, little brother goes out, gets lost. Who was looking for him? Who was looking for him like the shepherd? Who was looking for him like the woman? Right? And Jesus is saying, I'm the one. I'm the true older brother. I'm the one who's coming out into the world to find sinners, just like, that she- just like that shepherd, just like that woman who's looking for a coin, just like the older brother should have been doing the entire time. And I'm going to bring them back home. And not only did it cost me my seat in heaven, eventually it's going to cost me my life. Eventually it's going to cost me everything I have. Eventually it's going to cost me my, 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 my standing with the Father. I mean, you know, Jesus on the cross, it wasn't just the physical death that he was experiencing, but there was something cosmic, there was something spiritual happening where he was separated from the Father. The same way that we deserve to be separated with God because of our sin, Jesus was separated with the Father while he was on the cross for our sake so that we could be welcomed back into his household, right? And so he just leaves it hanging. He just leaves it hanging. And we, I mean, we don't get to find out what, the old, what happens with the older brother, but, but it's for a bigger reason. Now, now, the application of this, I think, once we see the older brother's rationale, once we see, you know, the application is pretty obvious. With most of these parables, Jesus was pretty straightforward. You know, he tried to put it in plain terms. And for the younger brother, if you're here tonight, and you, and you can relate with that younger brother, because think about the younger brother. When he was sitting there in the mud, sitting there with the pigs, Thinking, man, my, I can't believe my life got to this point. And truthfully, I'm so far gone that there is no way that, the fa- that my father is going to let me back into my home. There is absolutely no way. I'm going to have to do something. You know what? I'm going to come up with this plan. I'm going to come up with this plan, and I'm going to go ahead and, and, and you know, come back and serve, and I'm going to offer my entire life. And then maybe, just maybe, the father will welcome me back into his home. Look at the father's embrace. When he actually does. You know, I, I know for me, my mentality when I had first, you know, started learning about God was that there is no way that God could accept me. You know, I, I, I thought, man, there's, there's sin in my life. There's relationships in my life. There's brokenness in my life. There's so much in my life. There's so much baggage that I'm bringing into this. There's no way God's going to let me back. Maybe one year down the line, maybe two years down the line. Maybe I need to clean up a couple of little things. And then I can start going to church and becoming a, you know, a devout Christian. And there was this one Christian who God placed in my dorm in SUNY Binghamton of all places. And I had a conversation with him. And I, said, I told him where my heart was at, you know, and, and, and he was trying to share the gospel with me. And I said, you know what? I got to clean up my life before I could really start thinking seriously about this God thing. And he said this one sentence to me that completely changed my entire life. A light switch went on. It was just a paradigm shift. He said, you don't have to clean your life up to come to God. You come to God and he'll clean you. And that's the message that Jesus is talking about to, to all the younger brothers. Now, that story, I mean, that concept changed my life. That was enough for, 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 for me to really see God's heart. 
And I hope today that you'll see that Jesus has accomplished everything it, it, that needs to be accomplished for us to come back and be welcomed back into God's home, freely forgiven, no matter what baggage you're bringing into it, no matter what sin you committed this weekend and, and you feel like, ah, I need to fix things before I could really be praying to God and, and, and having a right relationship with him. No, you just need to come back to God in the same way that the, that the younger son did. But for the older brothers, and this is probably a lot of us, you know, like, like, like we're in a church building. There's probably a lot of you guys who've been here for a while. And, you know, a lot of us could start having this older brother mentality. And for us, we have a lot to repent for. You know, the judgmentalness and just this condescension towards the younger brother, it shows a lack of understanding of, of the father's love. Think about what he said to him. Son, it didn't matter all this stuff that you've done for me. Everything that I've had was always yours. It was always yours. Before you did, all, before you served me, before you accomplished all these things for me, before you were out in the field just toiling every single day for me, every single thing I had was yours. It was given to you freely. So in the same way, you should be celebrating when I decide to give freely to your younger brother, even though he didn't live the same lifestyle that you did. You guys are on the same plane. You're my children. And I don't love you because of the things that you've done. I love you because I am love. That's what God would have to say to us. But at the same time, think about the reaction that the older brother had. And this is helpful. This is very helpful for me. What do we do when God gives us circumstances outside of what we want? Do you ever have a reaction? God, I've been serving you. And this is what you're going to give me? I've been good to you. I've, I've done everything. I've, I go to church every Sunday. I, I, I read the Bible. I pray. And you're going to give me this circumstance? You're going to give me this trial? You're going to give me this issue? You're going to give her that, but you're going to give me this? You're going to give him that, but you're going to give me this? When we have that attitude, even though it's very subtle, you know, God might be serving us. God might be giving us great things. But at that moment, God is not our savior. God's just there to give us the circumstances that we're asking for. And so, you know, the, the challenge here is, you know, come back to God for God. Don't come to God for having an easy life. Because actually, Jesus guarantees you the exact opposite. If you want to follow Jesus, your life is going to be a lot more difficult than if you decide not to follow Jesus. And so when we face these trials, when we face these temptations, when we face these circumstances, you know, we're still God's child. And, and, and we get to still enjoy God just as much in that moment, if not more. And so it's a bit of a challenge as to where, where exactly our heart is at. Um, and so just wrapping up, the, the beautiful thing about both of these sons, the beautiful thing about this parable, no matter what, side of the fence you feel that you're on is that the father pursues both of them. When, when, when the son comes out, the younger son, and he tries to come back as a servant, the father runs out and embraces him. And so if you're here tonight and you feel like that younger brother, understand that, that if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Understand that God is waiting there on the porch for you to return home. And as soon as you draw near to him, he's going to run and embrace you. No questions asked. 
get the robe, get the ring, get the care if we're going to have a party. And if you're here tonight and you feel like that older brother, the answer isn't get your act together, fix yourself, have a better attitude. No, the answer is just, just like the younger son. Come back inside. Come celebrate with me. I don't need you to fix your attitude. I don't need you to become now a better, understand grace. What am I supposed to do? No, just come to the Father. Embrace his grace. And and honestly, dig into this passage because it has a lot to say about our heart condition. So um, so I'm going to close us in prayer. I'm going to be sticking around. Um, If you you guys have any questions or if I could pray for you, I would love to have that opportunity. Um, And so I'm going to pray for us. And then someone's going to come up to, uh, to lead us in communion. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.